Hello and welcome back to the Critical Care Podcast, Building the Right Foundation. A podcast designed for nurses and doctors early in their intensive care careers. My name is Reluca Wagner, an intensive care nurse, and I'm joined by Chris Goff, intensive care consultant. And today we will be talking about managing impaired mental status. Hi, Chris, and welcome back. Thank you for having me back, Reluca. Hi. Today's episode is going to be slightly different than what we've had up to now, because we will be joining one of our patients who has been in intensive care in our unit, in our care, for about a week's time. And I guess, if that's all right, do you want to introduce the the patient, Chris? Sure. So our patient is Mary, who's 53 years old, and she was admitted to ICU a week ago after she had an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Her stay has been complicated with a ventilator-associated pneumonia, from which she has now recovered, and we are planning to wean the sedation, lighten her up, and assess her neurology and her suitability for potential extubation. So we've we've finished the sort of early management with this lady, which was all around sort of targeted temperature management and trying to protect her brain from uh, sort of any further harm after her cardiac arrest. Is that sort of um, sort of neuroprotective measures? Is that a, a term that's familiar to you, Reluca, or am I talking gobbledygook as usual? <laughs> I, I won't uh, fall into that trap to answer the question. Um, yes, <laughs> yes, it is something that we do see in uh, in intensive care, um, and it is something that we prepare for. Say, you know, we know there's a patient that is coming with um, with a brain injury. We will prepare for to provide those neuroprotective measures. The one that I can think of um, off the top of my head in terms of cardiac arrest and a very important one for us is um, targeted temperature. And we've got a protocol as to how many hours we're going to keep them on 36 degrees, how many hours we're going to keep them on 37 degrees. Um, and, and then we're going we're gonna to stop that. I think that's a 72 hours um, targeted temperature protocol. But also there are different other ways of protecting the brain basically and we talk about uh, maintaining a blood pressure control quite a quite a strict blood pressure control and a co2 control quite strict as well so i think those are the three main ones that i think of when when they say there's a patient that is coming we need to do neuroprotective measurements but i guess in this case mary's been here for for a week isn't it and we we sort of finished that after a week i would presume that that's sort of finished isn't it chris well, but broadly speaking, yes, I think, um, you know, there are a lot of people who can have injuries in their brain that we, we talk about this sort of neuroprotective management or neuroprotective strategies. And really sort of anybody who's got risk of bruising or swelling or edema uh, or anything within their brain could be at risk of raised intracranial pressure. And that's because the, the skull is a very tight fixed box. It can't expand. And within it, you've got the brain, the blood in the arteries and the veins and the CSF. And so if there's any increase in any one of those, be it from, well, an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest with sort of ischemia to the brain, you may get swelling. You can have it in people who have got sort of meningitis or uncontrolled seizures or traumatic brain injuries, um, subarachnoid hemorrhage or anything else like that that, that is increasing one of those uh, components within the brain, within the skull, sorry, will mean that there is potential that 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 the ICP, the intracranial pressure, can go up to dangerous levels. 
And so there are a number of strategies that we can implement to reduce that risk from happening, I suppose, is the best way of, of talking about it. Um, and as you say, the most common that we do is, is tight control of the CO2. And um, the reason we do that is when the CO2 goes up, the blood vessels dilate. And we mentioned this in an earlier episode with a patient with COPD about how their peripheral pulses can feel quite strong uh, as a marker of their CO2 being up. And that is because their blood vessels, the arteries, have dilated a little bit. And so within the brain, that can mean that those blood vessels are taking up more space. And so we keep the CO2 to a, a low normal to try and sort of optimize the size of the blood vessel. Because if you double your CO2, you will double the cerebral blood flow and take up more space with those blood vessels. But if you lower it too much, you might you might not just say, well, why don't we get the CO2 as low as possible? Why don't we get it to three or two? Well, actually, if you do that, you can over-constrict the blood vessels and reduce the blood flow to the brain and worsen ischemia. So this this sort of sweet spot um, of around a CO2 of four to five, where you've got sort of the best balance of cerebral blood flow without it taking up too much space. Oxygen slightly less of an issue, just keep the oxygen normal. Uh, blood pressure. Um, well, we know that we need to keep sufficient blood supply to the brain. And if the ICP is up a little bit, that will reduce the cerebral blood flow. So let's give you an example. If, if we're targeting a map of 60 or 65, which we might do with a lot of our patients, and the ICP has gone up and it's 10, 15, or let's say it's 20, the actual cerebral blood flow is the difference between those numbers, between the map and the ICP. So if the map is 60 and your ICP is 20, you've actually only got a difference of 40. So that will reduce your cerebral blood flow. So we always want to try and keep a, a difference of about 60. So therefore, we would target of a map of 80. Now, that is a very specific group of people. That's not evidence-based within the out-of-hospital cardiac arrest group, but that is evidence-based in the group of patients who have got traumatic brain injury. So some of these patients may benefit from a higher blood pressure and targeting that what's called the cerebral perfusion pressure. So I think I called it the cerebral blood flow, but it's the cerebral perfusion pressure. So those, are, I mean, are, are those things that are familiar to you, Raluca, working in intensive care that we sometimes target those those different areas to look after the brain? They, they are. I think what I would want to pick up on is the ICP. And you mentioned some numbers and you know how I like my numbers. Um, so that the ICP is the intracranial pressure, right? And then in order to give you a number, uh, is it right to say that our neurology colleagues will come in introduce a probe isn't it um which is going to be attached to this machine that will read the intracranial pressure um and then we are quite restricted about movement of the head up and down in order not to increase it is that is that the numbers that we're talking about yeah the, the vast majority of intensive care units won't have that device available to them so that requires the neurosurgeons to come and put in the with the icp bolts the intracranial pressure monitor if you've got that, great, because that can give you the real-time number. It's not without risks having it cited. And a, the majority of intensive care units in in the, this country, certainly, um, would not have an ability to do that. But you've touched on another one, which is sort of patient positioning. So keeping the patient head up 30 degrees or more can help the venous drainage, which can also help bring the ICP down. We've already talked about temperature a little bit. So making sure that the patient doesn't get too hot 
because every degree that your temperature rises will increase your metabolic work within your brain by about 7%. So the more metabolic work it's doing, the, the more blood supply it's got, the more waste products it's doing, you're making it work harder. You want to try and reduce that as much as possible to reduce any further damage. And that sort of leads nicely on to managing their sedation and, and pain as well. So you need to make sure the patients are appropriately sedated and not in pain or distress. Um, finally, I think finally, I'll probably remember something else in a minute, um, I think is managing seizures um, and glucose control. So making sure that the patients don't have seizures because you can imagine a seizure is basically, you, we may just be seeing the peripheral effects of it, the body moving, but that electrical discharge is happening throughout the brain and all of those cells are firing. So that can significantly increase the, the metabolic demands within the brain uh, and cause further harm. So aggressively treating seizures. And some of these patients may need prophylactic anticonvulsants. Um, anti, anti Thank you. <laughs> I don't know how I got into anticoagulation. That's totally not what I'm thinking. The therapeutic anticonvulsants um, to try and you know really minimize that risk. So let me see if I got it right, okay? So we've got Mary, she's had an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. She came to us. We are providing the neuroprotective measurements. So we, we have been, for the for the first week perhaps, we have been um, monitoring her temperature. We have been monitoring and keeping her blood pressure into quite a tight, tight numbers as such. Same with the CO2 and same with the glucose. But we are a week later and you mentioned about yeah winning the sedation basically and i know from experience when you start weaning sedation most often not with all patients but most often it's not as straightforward as you you just stop the sedation and they're nicely awake and they understand they've got a tube in their mouth that's helping them breathe and they understand where they are and so on and so forth so i worry that if we're still talking about neuroprotective measurements when we're trying to wean the support then we're actually not going to be able to achieve that that's the reality isn't it they wake up they're hypertensive they're tachycardic so there's no way in heaven we can start titrating a systolic when a patient is awake and agitated uh for sure it's very difficult um i suppose i i should just touch on the fact that although we're talking about some neuroprotective me measures here we may pick and choose, uh, I think that's probably the wrong phrase, but we would institute different ones on different patients. So the most important thing with the cardiac arrest patient is the, the targeted temperature management. That's got quite a strong evidence base. But the stronger evidence base for people with traumatic brain injury, for example, is around the CO2 and the blood pressure control. And there isn't strong evidence for a temperature control. So I, I've talked about the, the different measures, but you would choose which ones you would do for different patients. Um, well, look, the, the best way to make sure that you are protecting the patient's brain is to wake them up and assess their neurology um, directly. So if they've got a blood, uh, if they've got a GCS of 15 uh, and they are normal and they you can be reassured that even if their CO2 is six rather than four and a half and if their blood pressure is high or low, actually, it's OK because their neurology is normal. When they're unconscious, we can't do that. So you've got to try and transition them from that stage that, um, you know, maybe is less relevant to this clinical scenario, but perhaps you could easily see it with a lot of other patients that we see where you've got them quite tightly controlled. The CO2 is four and a half or five. You've got it all perfect. 
but oh gosh, how do we wake them up and get them taking over and doing all on their, their own? And that is very difficult. You sort of have to try and ride through that stage of them starting to take spontaneous breaths, their CO2 going up a little bit, to try and get to the end point of them being awake enough that you can assess them. Obviously, it's a little bit easier if you have an ICP monitor in because you can see what's happening to their ICPs in real time. But again, they're waking up, they're getting agitated, they're coughing on the tube. You will get spikes in the ICP and that is normal. You know, if you sneeze now or cough now, your ICP will spike transiently. Doesn't mean that's abnormal and we should treat it. So it is a very difficult balance. Uh, like a lot of the things that we've talked about in these podcasts, sometimes there isn't a really clear and easy road to smooth it all out but the ambition should be to wake the patients up and assess their neurology you know by assessing them so i guess you said the right the right word is the balance between them and deciding when is the right time to to start going on on that basis but i guess mary's a, a week later we can we can start looking into that in terms of the medication that I would be looking to start titrating, um, we're talking about sedation, we're talking about pain control as well. What I have seen most often is that of my patients or the patients that are looked after, they're on either Propofol. Again, it depends on the trust you're in probably. But we, we use Propofol quite a lot. We use fentanyl um, significantly. And sometimes we use midazolam. It's not something that we use very often. Um, I have seen it in some cases introduced for various reasons, but it's not something that we use very, very often. Is this the normal three sort of medications or type of medications that we use for sedation and pain? Basically, the sedation that we use will be split into two main groups. So you have your opiate based medication or analgesics and you have your sedatives. So your analgesics are your morphine, your fentanyl, your alfentanyl, or in some cases, your remifentanyl, that that all work very similarly, but in their own way are very different in terms of how quickly they work, how long they last, um, and how quickly it comes off once you, you stop the infusion. And then you have your sedatives, which we used to use midazolam uh, quite a lot. We've almost universally moved to using propofol extensively instead. Sometimes we might use things like clonidine or dexmetatomidine instead. Um, but those are the two main groups. You might think, well, the patient's deeply sedated. Why do we need them on any pain relief at all? And that would be a good question, to be honest. But the reason we do that is um, some of the things we do to them in intensive care are painful. But also, if you have them on some opiate-based analgesics, you will reduce the total amount of sedatives that you will need as well. So the two things combine quite nicely to, to, to have a combined effect that's beneficial. All patients in ICU used to be sedated with morphine and midazolam, and you will see, still see that from time to time. The downsides of that is it has a very long time for it to wear off when you stop it. So of the opiates that I mentioned, which was morphine, fentanyl, alfentanyl, and remifentanyl, Morphine is the one that lasts the longest when you stop it. The other three, fentanyl, alfentanyl, and remifentanyl, are much shorter acting. Um, fentanyl is the next longest, then alfentanyl, then remifentanyl. Um, it's rare that we use remifentanyl in intensive care because it actually wears off very quickly. No matter how long you give it for, if you stop the infusion within three or four minutes, it will all be out of the system. And that doesn't give you much of a safety net um, if you happen to not be on it within a, within seconds of the infusion pump stopping to get your next one in. 
I have seen patients in those two minutes, three minutes, wake up and pull out their tube. And that's just not really what we quite want in intensive care. We quite like a little bit of a slightly slower wake up. Um, and alfentanil and fentanyl both work very similarly. Alfentanil has a slightly shorter half-life, so that, but they're broadly very similar. So that's the sort of the pain relief medication. The, the morphine, however, if you if you give it by infusion, it can take quite a long time to wear off. It sort of can seep into your into your fat stores, and when you turn off the infusion, that can just slowly get released back into your body. In terms of the sedatives, we used to use midazolam a lot. We don't really anymore because it has the same problem as the morphine, which is it lasts for a long time and sticks around for a long time. And more recent studies have shown that it can increase your risk of delirium uh, after having an infusion with midazolam. We almost universally use propofol. And that's, I think, one of its greatest strengths is we all use it. We are all really familiar with it. It will wear off quite quickly relative to midazolam. But sometimes you get patients who need more than just propofol. And then you might be on propofol and midazolam. And then uh, clonidine and dexmedetomidine, we, we tend to choose and pick a little bit who would get those, who would benefit from those. They're another type of sedative work in a slightly different way, but can be added into your mix for some patients um, to just add into your, your sort of sedative cocktail, as it were. Perhaps you've tried them on propofol or you've tried them on midazolam and you're still getting issues with weaning them off sedation. You can maybe try clonidine or dexmedetomidine um, to try and help bridge that, that period around waking them up to try and smooth things out. So as I think that's I've, it's quite a lot of detail I've given there. I've done quite a lot of talking. Does that? How does that fit into the real world, Raluca? How does that fit into you nursing at the bedside? Does that sound sensible? Does it make any sense? Or it it, it does, and I think it's it depends because as I said, sometimes it's a it's a trust decision as to what drugs we're using. Um, but it's interesting, and because I've only worked in one trust, I wouldn't know what other trusts use. So it's really interesting to hear the differences. You're saying about remifentanil, and actually I had a patient the other day that came from theatres with remifentanil attached, and that was the first priority that I was told I need to change it. I didn't quite understand why. I know we used fentanyl, so okay, we just go to fentanyl, what we use. But it's interesting to know that I actually it's because of the of the the life of this medication, how long it stays in the body. So that, that was very interesting. What I was thinking about when we talk about weaning a patient to assess their neurology, one of the procedures that we do in a way um, is that we do a, sedate, a full sedation hold uh, every day to assess neurology and to orientate the patient. I would presume that with this patient for the first few days when we were keeping a really tight control of their um, neurological measures as such, we perhaps wouldn't do that because it would be contraindicated. But generally, what we tend to do at about 7am in the morning, just before the handover, we sort of uh, stop everything, uh, stop the propofol, stop the fentanyl, anything else that they've got running like midaz or, or clonidine, just stop everything and see how they do, try and orientate it to time and space. You've naturally paused there and I, um, I'm i amazed. Well, what what a great aim that we should all have, which is to be doing daily station holds on our patients. Um, which we know has benefit to them, um, shortens their time in intensive care, shortens their time being ventilated, reduces their risks of complications. Is it ever that simple, Raluca? Wow, I mean, um, what a brave time of day to do it as well, just before handover. Um, or maybe that's a great time of day to do it. I don't know, whatever whatever works for your department. Um, more people around, I suppose, around handover. Um, 
yeah, we, we've got to make sure that we are giving patients just the right amount of sedation. And we don't know how much that is unless we try and turn it down or turn it off and see, let them wake up and then add a bit back in again to keep them safe. Um, unless we are doing that regularly, then we are probably overstating people. And you only find out when you then go and stop it to wake them up and it takes them two days or three days to wake up. So yeah, it, absolutely. We should be doing regular sedation holds on these patients. So we do, we do at that time, um, the way it was explained to me when I started, because then you want the day or the night stuff. Well, it was in the morning. So the, the day stuff, you want, want them to be able to assess neurology at the same time with you. And perhaps it is a, a conversation about having more people around at that time. Sometimes you're right. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you just do it later when you know that everyone is settled and you've got manpower in case they do wake up um, quite uh, agitated but we do have a protocol as to the weaning uh, support so if you do a sedation hold and you have to bolus three times then you start at half the dose therefore you sort of try and reduce the amount of sedation you're giving that patient so there are there are certain ways of doing it but really Chris what I would like to talk more about is how we assess the neurology of the patient and what sort of tools do you use in your day-to-day -day practice? I think there are three main tools that we use quite often um, to assess neurology in critical care. There's the, the GCS, the Glasgow Coma Scale, um, which is sort of ubiquitous throughout medicine, not just in critical care, but will be widely known by all doctors and nurses throughout healthcare. Uh, there's then the RAS, the Richmond Agitation and Station Scale, uh, which is purely for use in intensive care. And then there's the CAM ICU or the confusion assessment method for the ICU which are very much just ICU tools and each of those work in slightly different ways and are useful for slightly different things. I suppose first of all we should probably talk about the GCS because it's probably the most widely used uh, neurological assessment tool in medicine and everybody will hopefully have heard of the GCS. How useful do you find the GCS in ICU Raluca? Hmm. Are you sure you want to ask me that question? I've got uh, <laughs> a bit of an issue with the GCS. But so the GCS is you are you are quite right. Is one of the tools that we sort of hear about and learn about at uni as well as as nurses. Is one of the uh, our neurological assessment tools that we learn about. The issue is, I guess, with the GCS, uh, especially in intensive care, it's not quite appropriate uh, from my perspective and I'll explain why. So the GCS, the way the way it works, it measures it measures eyes ver uh, verbal and motor um, uh, components and gives you a score right So the maximum score you can get with the GCS is 15 out of 15. Now where this becomes a bit more difficult with our patients is where they are intubated or they've got a tracking. OK, so my issue is if I've got two patients, one patient is intubated, but is able to write on the board their name, where they are, what they want. They will mark they will have a maximum score of at 11 because they will um, mark down for the tracking. Then if I've got next door a patient that is intubated, confused, pulling at the lines, they're still going to mark uh, they're still going to have a maximum score of 11. So if you look at those two charts, how do you make actually the difference? And 
how does the GCS score help you when you come mm. and assess I, well, the I patient? Well, I think that's, you, you've made a very valid point, which is that the, the GCS is quite a, a blunt tool for assessing neurology. But I, I think it's useful in patient groups sort of outside of that sort of specific nuance to critical care, because that is very much a sort of critical care challenge, which is a an intubated or ventilated patient or assessing agitation and sedation in critical care, um, for which I think the RAS and the CAM-ICU are, are better tools. GCS is a very broad tool for assessing, you know, overall impairment of neurological fun function. So a patient who's got a severe brain injury, um, who is only flexing rather than localizing or obeying commands with their arms, that that difference in GCS can be a useful prognostic tool in how well they will do overall. Now, as, as I say, in ICU, that perhaps that nuance is lost because of the differences with their vocal response based on whether they're intubated or not. And so they can only ever get a maximum of 11. I mean, I still find it's a little bit weird that your lowest score is three out of 15 rather than zero out of 15, but that's, you know, my personal gripe with the GCS. Um, but I think there are there are advantages to the GCS. You know, every doctor has heard of the GCS. Every nurse has heard of it at university and learnt about it. And we all still ask what the GCS is. What is the patient's GCS? And for some of the patients, their pre-intubation GCS can be very useful as a, as a prognostic sign uh, for how they're going to fare sort of as they get over and recover from their illness. So, I mean, is that, is that a sort of fair answer of why we all still go, please record the GCS all the time? Um, and to be fair, even though it's not perfect, changes in that imperfection. So if it's, their GCS is constantly recorded as 10 and then suddenly something happens and it's eight or seven, that is probably useful to know about as well. I see. <laughs> uh, I see where you're coming from, um, and and I do agree. For intubated patients, perhaps it's it's not quite relevant, even if they are not sedated. Uh, I, I do have an issue with it, um, and also because it is so widely used outside in within the ICUs and outside of ICUs. Actually, I think we don't give it so much credit. So when we assess eyes, for example, if somebody has opened the eyes. Uh, some some assess that as a full mark because they're spontaneously uh, opening the eyes. But if they're not tracking, some will still give the full mark. Whereas, what do you do in that situation? So I just feel there's a lot of fluctuation um, with how it's actually recorded. And because it is such a sort of it appears to be quite a straightforward tool, um, I feel we're not really giving it enough time um, and training to be able to do it evenly across different different people working. So I, I do have a bit of an issue with it. And um, the way I go about it is that I, I make a lot of annotations. So I will explain if I mark something down for any reason, I will put a very good explanation as to why I've done that. And hopefully that will help. Um, I did do, and I'm going to put a few links um, to GCS. Uh, and I have found something uh, which I'm only going to mention because I know it's not the, the purpose of this podcast. But there are different assessments that are used in intensive care. And one that I found, and it was quite interesting, is called the full outline of unresponsiveness score and uh, unresponsiveness score. So it's um, shortened to four. Um, and that seems a little bit more specific for neuropathologies, um, which might be interesting to look at. So I guess the, the takeaway home, uh, message from this is that if GCS doesn't work and as a unit, it decides it doesn't really work and it doesn't give you the the 
tools to make a decision, then perhaps there are other tools out there to use. I guess that's that's why I would uh, I would yeah, take and, home. from a medic from the sort of doctor perspective, I find the annotations quite helpful because actually what's important to me is you know, I want to know if they're flexing their right arm and extending their left arm. That's quite helpful to me for me to know. And that isn't reflected in a in a sort of a blunt GCS scale. That's very interesting. Uh, so, sorry, Chris, that's very interesting because I never, obviously, I annotate quite a lot. I find it useful when I look back and I look at the annotations. It's something that pops up and I can just pick it up rather than look at a long test, the text of what's happened, the shift before. I didn't really realise um, how helpful perhaps you guys find it, but that's that's good to know. Thank you for that. Well, I mean, hopefully we're examining these patients as well and getting the same sort of information. But um, yeah, it's um, whether that difference relates to a difference in long term prognosis for patients with brain injuries, I'm, I'm not sure whether it necessarily does, but um, it's useful to know what they, they can functionally do and what they're you know, what the practical realities are of a GCS of 10. Um, what does that actually mean? So if we've assessed the GCS, I think the next one that you've mentioned is the RAS score, the Richmond Agitation and Sedation Scale. How do you feel about this score and what, what, would, what would be the most important thing to know I about it? find it... Uh, because it's a score that's only really done in intensive care a bit like the cam icu it's a score that everybody is just a little bit less familiar with when compared to the gcs so i still in deep honesty have to flip to the back and work out what an exact score means so someone says that they're minus three i go hang on just remind me exactly what the minus three is i know it's not as deep as a minus five but so so the score goes from so this is i'm already getting a bit confused about it myself so the ras score the richmond agitation sedation scale score is a sedation is a score for your sedation and your sort of agitation level. So we use this a lot in intensive care for managing depth of sedation to try and ensure that our patients are not too deeply sedated or sedated at the level that we want them to be. And it goes from minus five, which is then being unrousable and gets up towards zero. So all of the negative numbers relate to depth of sedation. Zero is alert and calm. And then the positive numbers, which go up to a plus four, are related to how agitated they are. So plus two is just that they are agitated and plus four is that they are combative and violent and a danger to themselves and to staff. So I think that uh, that's a pretty broad brush again, but it is quite a useful way for, to help us titrate their sedation levels because one of the things we must do in intensive care is try and give patients as little sedation as they need um, uh, in order to keep them safe but we know that there are harms from too much sedation and there are risks to patients and the staff from not enough sedation. So I think it's quite a useful tool to just get everybody on the same page of sort of how asleep do we want them to be? Do you find it as a, a useful tool, Luca, or not so much? I've been thinking about uh, about this tool and how, how I use it at work, to be honest. And actually, I do think it's quite useful. Again, there is a level of uh, subjectivity of the person that is recording it. I think there's always going to be a level of that. But to me, the way it helps me is to be able to have a target for my sedation. So what do I want to achieve with my patient today? What I think I would highlight is that it is not set in stone. And you very, 
very clearly said, you know, if you give not, if you don't give enough sedation, perhaps your patient might become agitated and a risk to himself and the risk to patients. So I guess if you, you know, if, if the doctor rounds come and they say, you know, I want a, a Russ zero, nobody's going to say I want a Russ plus four, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> I want a Russ, uh, Russ zero. And we're trying to reduce the sedation. And we see actually it goes from uh, minus three, which is the moderate sedation to about a plus two plus three, then I will most certainly increase that sedation again to keep the patient and us safe. So what I'm saying is that although there is a target, I think there is communication between us and you guys as, as the, the medical team um, to see what's safe to do. And there's there's room around it. Is that fair to yeah, say? I think that's very fair to say. I think I can think of a couple of scenarios where I sort of rely on it more than others there are times where I want to communicate to everybody that now is the time in this patient's condition where we can start to lighten him up and move him forward and try and make some progress because his condition's getting better and I communicate that in one way by saying right let's lighten the sedation let's ask target a RAS of minus two to plus one and there are other times when I'm looking back and the patient's inotropic requirement has changed perhaps and I want to see if that's related to the depths of sedation. So I can see they've gone from a RAS of minus two for sort of four or five hours down to a RAS of minus five for whatever reason, and their inotropes have gone up at the same time. Now, that's possibly just a direct effect of the sedation. So I find that quite useful as well to sort of track back what's happened um, in terms of their sedation level. And it's also sometimes if you, if you look back at the chart and you see the RAS has been minus three, minus two, plus one, minus one plus two minus two you can see that the sedation management has been really challenging and even though the station might not have changed you can just tell that this patient is just going to be a patient that we're going to struggle to sort of do this in a smooth way and it just i find it quite helpful as a i really sort of appreciate that the nurse has you know found that day particularly difficult in terms of managing that the sedation and agitation of the patient sometimes as doctors we we start the day at a ras of minus three and we end the day at a ras of minus three and we go well why why did we not why have we not made any progress why have we not weaned the sedation and actually sometimes the nuance in is, is in the details and if it's been minus three all day then sort of fine but if it's been minus three plus one minus two you know all over the place you can just think that nurse has had a really hard work <laughs> a day of really hard work it's interesting. Um, I guess uh, takeaway, and I'll say that at the end probably, it's just annotate so you guys <laughs> see what we're going through at the bedside. It, it's interesting because, you know, by, by default, there are two ward rounds, isn't it, in the morning and the, in the afternoon, whereas we're there all the time. And, and sometimes, um, you know, some you can see a snapshot of the patient's agitation levels, whereas we, we sort of see it all the time and you try and manage it. So it's interesting. It's interesting you say that. So that's the second scale that you mentioned. The third scale that you mentioned is the CAM ICU. Now, I will let you say a little bit about the, it if you want. The CAM ICU is the confusion assessment method for the ICU. So this is a um, an assessment that we can do regularly in critical care to help us to identify patients who have delirium. So this is specifically a delirium assessment tool working out whether your confused patients are delirious or are not delirious. I still find it, if I'm honest, quite a complicated tool to use. And um, we actually don't really know quite how to manage patients who are delirious if we identify them as delirious. So um, 
This may sound a bit confused then. What, why are we doing it if we're not quite sure how to act on the results? But Reluca, I think you do it quite regularly where you work, at least sort of once per shift. Tell me a bit more about how you do it and how useful you find it. You are right. Um, sort of uh, quite, quite for a long time, I had my little um, notebook and I would always open up to find the questions. But the way it works, really, and the reason why I like it is that it it brings in both the GCS and the RAS into assessing your patient. So what the CAMICU does um, looks at the changes in GCS as the first step. So have has there been any changes in your patient's um, uh, mental mental status? And you'll get a number for it. Then it looks at inattention. So what the way you assess that you you give them some letters and you ask them to squeeze your hand for for example letter A. So you check to see whether they there there is a degree of inattention. Okay, that's number two. Number three, you just record the current RAS, so the the sedation level. And I think this is where if your patient is RAS minus five, it's definitely not, uh, you are not going to be able to do anything with your patient and assess whether they're delirious because they're too sedated. So there are certain levels of RAS that this, uh, you can't do the CAM-ICU. But say it does qualify, you just record the, the RAS. Is it zero? Is it other than zero? And the fourth one, so the fourth feature of the CAM-ICU, is assessing whether the patient has got disorganized thinking. And this is where those beautiful questions come in. So you ask them for four questions, um, which uh, people say that quite straightforward. I personally don't find them straightforward. I'll just tell you one. Um, can you use a hammer to pound a nail? Um now, English is my second language. I had to, to look up what it means. So it's got its faults, to be perfectly honest. But what we are assessing is to see whether the patient has got this organized um, thinking. So you count the number of mistakes and you record it. But this feature, you also ask um, them to do something for you, so to, to hold up two fingers. And again, you assess whether they have made mistakes. Going through the four, one GCS, two inattention, three RAS, and four disorganized thinking, it's going to give you a score that will decide whether the patient is CAM-ICU positive or CAM-ICU negative. Obviously, CAM-ICU positive means that there is delirium present, and CAM-ICU negative means that there is no delirium present. I know it's a bit of a mouthful, but how, how, are you fi- how do you find that, Chris? <laughs> Well, I, th- I think your description is excellent of a very complicated topic. Um, I th- there are ways you don't have to do the full le- four levels on all patients. So there, if there are various exits on each stage, so for example, if you're doing the letters and they're squeezing the hand and they happen to get it perfectly right for, let's say, you say save a heart and ask them to squeeze your hand every time you say the letter A, if they get it correct, they are not delirious. You do not need to go on to the next step. So uh, I have to get out the chart every time I do it. Um, perhaps that's because I'm just not doing it enough um, or because I'm a really slow learner. Um, but I get the chart out so that I don't get it wrong because uh, I find it quite complicated. I, I still find it very complicated to do. Um, but, you know, I think we need to accept that delirium is present in a lot of our patients. And there are some patients that we pick it up in more easily. For example, the ones that are a bit agitated and are causing us increased workload. Um, but there are a lot of patients who have hypoactive delirium, uh, so they're more settled and more subdued and sort of contained within themselves, where we are not probably identifying that they are delirious, unless we do 
these assessments on a regular basis. Um, and we do know that delirium is a is important for us to pick up in terms of its prognostication, its effect on that patient and their recovery. And they are more likely to run into problems and have complications and be in hospital for longer. Um, so we probably do need to identify it, even though the management then of the delirium is not quite so clear cut. It's not quite so easy to know what we do to manage the delirium. So I guess that takes us quite nicely into talking more about delirium and what do we do if we assess the patient and they are CAM ICU positive? Well, isn't that the million dollar question? Um, so I'm not sure we really know what to do, um, particularly, for example, for the hypoactive deliriums, the people who just sort of sit there in a chair and are delirious, but are not causing us any issue. We don't know what to do with them. And we're much better at trying to treat the ones who are sort of combative and agitated because they give us much more of a headache. Um, but yeah, look, there's not much evidence for much of this. And there is evidence that some of it is actually maybe not of benefit. So let me break it down. We've, we've got the non-pharmacological management, which I think is really important and cannot really be understated how important it is, which is things like making sure that it's quiet at night so they can get some sleep, um, improving their day-night routine, uh, orientating them to time, place and person whenever we can, um, making sure it's dark at night, quiet at night, but similarly light and sort of interactive during the day. Um, those sorts of things are the most important, I think. You've then got the pharmacological management. So we're all very quick, to, I say all, um, hopefully we're not all that quick, but we are often quick to reach for the haloperidol, for the quetiapine, for the clonidine maybe, uh, to try and manage the delirium. None of that has any evidence. And there are some signs that actually giving the medications like that can actually worsen or prolong the duration of the delirium. So it's very difficult to find a way because often we are struggling to keep these patients safe. You know, they can get agitated and be really aggressive. Um, and we are trying to find ways to keep them safe in bed so they're not hurting themselves or the staff. And so we do find we do end up giving them something. But there is a lot to be said for um dedicated nursing care um you know talking the patient down doing all the non-pharmacological things and really really keeping those pharmacological treatments in reserve if you're really getting into trouble um certainly i think we're pretty convinced now that they're, they're probably not of any benefit um potentially could be worsening the prolongation of of delirium um, and we do know things like giving them benzodiazepines will also make make it worse as well um, so, yeah, just a lot of reassurance, a lot of orientation to where they are. Sometimes you can try and get maybe their relative to speak to them on the phone, a voice that they know. I mean, sometimes that has challenges if the patient's delirious. Um, I did have a patient the other day tell his wife he wanted to get a divorce while he was on the phone to her delirious. Yeah, that didn't that was not ideal in any way, shape or form, because uh, she then didn't want to speak to him again for the next two weeks while he was recovering. So, um you know, but 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 people people will say things when they're delirious. They probably won't remember it, and they will. Um, you know, it, it's easy for us to get a bit frustrated with them, but actually, that you know, it's all part of their illness and their recovery, and just trying to do the good things regularly, helping them sleep at night, trying to make sure that your unit is quiet at night and and dark, will go a long way, probably.
all it takes is one delirious patient there screaming the place down. Everybody has an awful night. And uh, funnily enough, more you'll get more delirium later down the line. And how you manage that is not clear. I hear what you're saying. And I've also seen the middle of the night admissions, trauma admissions that will keep everyone awake for several hours because they're so sick and you have to have lights on and you've got so many people around. I feel that it's hard to just do the non-pharmacological interventions. It's really, really hard. And I think in, in, a, in an environment where you've got about three patients, it's even harder. Yeah, I, I make no bones about the fact that it is these patients can be really, really challenging to manage. We know that what we're giving them isn't really helping anything, but we're trying to minimise further harm to themselves. And, you know, you also have to protect the staff. You can't have your staff being punched and kicked um, by patients. So you've got to find a way to manage that. And it is really difficult. Um, yeah, there, there are ways that you can manage your admissions, having them come into a sort of a, a hot zone where patients are sicker or having isolation rooms or cubicles. Um can minimize the disruption in the rest of the unit that's easy to say and much more difficult to do and for a lot of intensive care units that will just not be possible um so yeah very difficult i had a conversation with one of my colleagues who's just moved from a different trust a different hospital to us and it, it was quite interesting the fact that they were never allowed to give certain medications in a delirious um scenario whereas perhaps we would we would give and it's just this variety across the country it's quite staggering isn't it in terms of what what we prescribing our patients for delirium and what we're not and obviously this is not the first line of uh, of treatment but um probably it's a lot of conversation and a lot of research that needs to go into it i, I think it's not just delirium raluca i think there are lots of ways that practice varies across the country particularly in the areas where evidence mm. is scanty. Um, I mean, another example is mucolytics. So some places will give carbocysteine to all their patients with thick chest secretions. Other places we use N-acetylcysteine NEBs. Other places we use saline NEBs. Other places we use hypertonic saline NEBs. You know, there's not really any evidence that one or other of those is better than the rest. Um, and the same, I think, is true of delirium. You, you have to try and find within the evidence that's available, something that will work in your intensive care unit um, to keep your patients safe. And that I, th I think that's the difference here. You know, what we've got to accept that what we're giving them isn't really helping. We're not really treating the underlying problem. We are trying to minimise the harm as much as possible. Mm, that's an interesting way of looking, looking at it. So with Mary... We have slowly started to wean the sedation. Um, probably we had to increase it at some points and go back down at some points. I don't think there is a straightforward way of weaning sedation. Sometimes you just have to go with it. Sometimes it does happen really quickly, but you just have to, to work with the tools you have and work within the targets that are good for that patient. Delirium, perhaps in an ideal world, we've managed uh, Mary's delirium with the non-pharmacological interventions, which is the ideal. You know, we, we've got the benefit of family coming in, as you said, that really, really helps them. And now we, um, Mary is assessed as being appropriate 
I think that's the okay. word we normally use. Are they appropriate? Yes, they're appropriate. Let's extubate. Um, and then we we will looking we will look to extubate, which is again a, a really good um, place for Mary to be, as uh, with all of our patients, isn't it? <laughs> We've done a really good job. And she's 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 been extubated. She's back to a full neurological recovery, and she go home goes home and lives a long and happy, healthy life. Absolutely, we've done such a good job, um, and she's uh, she's at home enjoying life now. Did did you want me to try and do a summary before we go to our three take home messages, or am I dangerously and inappropriately jumping ahead? Go with the summary. I like your summary. So nice and concise. So we've uh, we've we've talked about Mary who's in her 50s, who's come in after a cardiac arrest a week ago. We've talked about the neuroprotective measures of patients who have any sort of potential brain injury, particularly focusing on CO2 control and blood pressure control, remembering that the brain or the skull is a fixed box. And so an increase in any one of the components of brain, blood or CSF must be joined by a reduction in the others, otherwise the ICP will go up. We've talked about the ways that we can manage uh, the different sedation and medication in intensive care, um, which we split into the categories of sort of the opiate-based analgesics and the sedatives, um, such as propofol and midazolam. We've talked about how we can assess the patient's neurology and how GCS is a, a wonderful blunt tool, which is widely known. <laughs> Reluca is giving me very funny looks while I'm talking about this. A beautiful blunt tool which has huge uh, inaccuracies in the intensive care population. And then how we manage the agitation and sedation scales with the RAS score um, and the CAM-ICU, which is our assessment of delirium. For delirious patients, there's not much in the way of pharmacological management, which is evidence-based, um, but the non-pharmacological management uh, should really be prioritised, accepting that it's very difficult sometimes to manage these patients. And I think that is what we've covered. It's quite quite an in-depth one. And as you were talking, apart from giving you really dirty looks when you're talking about um, GCS, uh, I was uh, was reflecting on the session and what would be my three takeaway messages. The first one will be about um, waking up the patient to assess their neurological status in balance with maintaining the neuroprotective measures, obviously later down the line. And what is more important and when that balance needs to be tipped over into I need to assess how they are neurologically, because if they're asleep, I can't do that. And that that was very interesting um, way of of seeing it. The second one uh, is about delirium. um, That the medications we're giving is more to manage and to keep the patient safe and to keep uh, potentially the, the staff safe rather than treat that particular then treat that delirium if that makes sense and the third one is just a reflection really about the tools and how perhaps we do need a bit more work around what is best to use and with that in mind when it comes to tools I'm going to add some more some more details about GCS and different other tools used in intensive cares um, and some research about those ones in in the notes over to you, Chris. What are your three three takeaway messages? Hmm. I think. Well, I'm. I'm. I do enjoy a bit of neurointensive care, if I'm honest. So I've got to talk about the neuroprotective measures. Uh, would be one of mine. So um, if I could only pick one, well, let's talk about the CO2 control. So you know, if you double your CO2 
you will double your cerebral blood flow. So keeping your CO2 in a very tightly controlled range will sort of make sure that your, your delivery and blood supply to the brain is optimal. Um, station and medication, I suppose. Um, yeah, the, just the, you know, analgesics and sedative medications work differently, but can have sort of beneficial actions when they're given together, sort of reducing the, the amount that you need to give um, of both. So um, having a bit of opiate and a bit of sedation can have, have beneficial effects. And um, well, I've, I've, my third take home message has got to be about the GCS. Um, it's, it's a blunt, blunt tool. And um, I've enjoyed watching you get really worked up about it, Raluca. But my take home message has been, you know, it's just not that good in intensive care. Um, I know you've done some, some research or a journal, journal club on other modes of of assessing it and I, I look forward to seeing those in the the sort of information after this podcast but um yeah gcs is, is not a great tool in intensive care very very blunt and not really fit for what we do perfect with that in mind thank you very much for listening to today's episode which concludes our um, series of icu episodes we hope you've enjoyed this episode and we hope to see you for series two. Thank you so much, Chris, for sticking in with me and, uh, and joining in, in all the episodes. And thank you for sharing your knowledge and your experience. It's been great to have you. Thank you for listening. And thank you to the Healthcare Leadership Academy and Medics Academy for supporting and sponsoring this podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this series. And don't forget to give us a like, follow us and drop us a comment. Thank you all for listening. Goodbye. Thank you.